Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. One quick warning, this episode contains some topics which may not be suitable for our younger listeners. And on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Born into a very oppressive society, she became a loud voice in a battle for racial and gender equality. Her journey would take her from slavery to a world stage where she tirelessly campaigned for justice and reform. The end. Let's talk about Ida B. Wells. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1862, the Civil War was in its second year. Julia Howe published the Battle Hymn of the Republic. U.S. introduced paper currency for the first time, and in a twist, it also collected the first income tax. Samuel Colt and Henry David Thoreau died. Writers O. Henry and Edith Wharton were born. And on July 16, 1862, Ida Bell Wells was born. Ida Bell Wells was born to Jim and Lizzie Wells in Holly Springs, Mississippi. She's the first child of eight, although one died in infancy. Her parents were both born slaves, but they had polar opposite experiences of slavery. Lizzie, her mother, was ripped from her family very young, about seven or eight Sold far away, she had at least one violent owner, maybe more. But James, her father, was actually a white man's son. Not only that, the only child of this wealthy farmer. He had no other children, and so James Wells was regarded as the comfort and companion of his father. A relatively favored child, despite his status as a slave. So, doing the best he could for his son, given the circumstances, um, Father Wells bound him out to a newly wealthy architect and builder named Spires Bowling. I keep wanting to call him Squire Bowling. Oh, that's funny. Too many Regency it's, novels, yeah, I think. Yes, I think so. So, if I slip up and call him Squire Bowling. <laughs> that's why. That's why. And there, James met Lizzie, who was one of the nine slaves of the household. She ran the kitchen. Spires Bowling had a lot of children. There was a lot of cooking to be done. Yeah, that's right. And she was very good at it. She was a famous cook. Mm-hmm. People were happy to come eat right. at his table because right. he had a really good cook. Right. Everyone was very jealous of this cook. Yeah. Um, and also, James was known as a wonderful, skilled carpenter. Carpenter. Much in demand. Mm-hmm. Can we borrow him? Can we borrow him to do this for us? Blah, blah, blah. Right. I think it's kind of, it's really sweet that these two people from such opposite upbringings found each other and found luck, it was definitely a love match. No question about it. Um, as the war was coming to completion, do you want to give us a little primer on the Civil War? Well, okay. In 1862, when Ida Wells was two months old, Abraham Lincoln, we all know who he is, Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation, which states, All persons held as slaves within any states or designated parts of the state, the people whereof shall be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. Sounds awesome, but technically it freed nobody. Because it only applied to people behind Confederate lines, Mm -hmm. and the Confederacy's like, yeah, whatever. So it was a good declaration, but it really didn't pull any levers. No. And in fact, Holly Springs, where this family lived during the Civil War, changed hands 59 times. That is just amazing. You'd wake up and like, who's in charge? I don't know. Like, and just swept through back and forth. And as you can imagine, the town is getting very decrepit by now. Right. Um, So what the heck does someone in this position do? I mean, there's only so many times you can get your hopes up. So thousands upon thousands of black inhabitants the Union would come and they would flee, like mm-hmm. in the thousands. It was very dangerous, though, because there were Confederate vigilantes roaming the countryside, just aching to shoot you. Right. So it would be safer to stay in the house that you'd already known, because tomorrow the, the rulers would had changed. Had changed. And- well, Jim and Lizzie took a look around, kind of after the war, and probably, you know, they're in a respectable house. Spires Bowling was kind enough to them. He absolutely wanted to keep James on as a free laborer, too. He respected his craftsmanship. I think so. Yeah, right. And they kept Lizzie on as a cook. Yeah, and, you know, the town was decrepit. There was a lot of work to be done. And he looked around and kind of saw that this was probably the best course. He had two small children by now. You're not going to want to pack them and go to uncertain life when you had Mm -hmm. a pretty good laid-out future ahead of you. Right. So the war is officially over in 1865, 
1866, there was uh, the Civil Rights Act, which stated that men of color could own property and make contracts. Not women of color. But whatever, that's for another day. <laughs> and in 1868, the 14th Amendment gave citizenship to the black people of America, mm-hmm. although only males over 21 could vote. That's yeah. a combo for another day. So Ida was born at such this volatile time. Nobody knew how to act. Seriously, mm-hmm. nobody. The South was just raw. James and Lizzie, they, yeah. they thrived during this time yeah. when a lot of people were just spiraling. They just put their heads down and worked toward a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, all the blacks were struggling up, mm-hmm. and all the whites were really trying to, like, it was like that whack-a-mole game. Right. <laughs> Almost. I mean, I, you know, we yeah, no, it, but it was like, you put your head up, and somebody's going to come over and hurry right. and push you back down. Right. That seemed like what it was right. starting to be. Can I talk about James's political involvements? That would be great. I think it's interesting, because he had them. Yeah, he did have them. That's um, putting his head up big time. James got his first ability to vote in 1867. They were voting for delegates to write a new Mississippi Constitution. Mm-hmm. That is the first time black men could vote. Mm-hmm. And James was going to vote. Oh, of course he was. And, and not only did he go out campaigning on nighttime marches, which only two years ago could have gotten you hauled in right. and whipped. Right. Uh, Swire Bowling, his boss, insisted that James and the other workers vote Democratic. Right. i.e. the status quo. Right. And you could tell because the tickets were different colors. Mm-hmm. You knew who voted what, and mm-hmm. there were spies, oh, who voted this way. James did not vote the way his boss wanted him to. James voted the way James wanted to. And he came home and he found himself locked out of his workshop. Oh, so Mr. Bowling was making his feelings clear. Well, James made yeah. his feelings clear. He said calmly to his family, pack your things, won't you? He went downtown, he bought new tools, and he rented a new house directly across the street from Mr. Bowling's house and reopened up his carpentry shop. And just waved at his neighbor. All before Mr. Bowling got home. Right. So from her father, Ida Wells got this strong sense of justice and this strong sense of self-worth and mm-hmm. possibility, I think. And to follow your own heart yeah. and to do what you know is the right thing for for you. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So that's where that yeah. stubborn streak comes from. Right. And it and it was successful. I mean, she saw her dad say, all right, this is the way it goes. Let's have this life right across the street because we're equal now. Mm-hmm. Mama, on the other hand, was very polite and proper. She wanted her daughters to be ladies and grow up to be polite Christian women. Well, this was Victorian times. Is mm-hmm. that weird? Think about that. I know. These ladies are also Victorians. Right. That's right. We, we forget that all this is happening. It's so... American and Wild West, but just think of our time period. That's right. right. <laughs> no, that's true. And that's what she wanted her her daughters to grow up. She's seen the kind of woman that she wanted them to be like, and, and she was raising them towards that goal. Well, they used calling cards. Well, it's that whole thing. You know, you dress for the job that you want. That's exactly right. The children were all sent to school. They were... Both parents were very big on education. They went to a school that was called Shaw University at the time, then it changed its name to Rust College. And many places were called college and university, which is confusing, but it was all ages. Right. It was just an institution of learning might mm-hmm. be called a university, even if there's small children there of right. six and seven. Right. So, And that's what they attended. And she attended there all the way up till the age of 16. The thing is, with Freedmen's schools, which had sprung up everywhere, it used to be illegal was, for a slave to be taught to read. Right. And now they took advantage of this opportunity. I mean, they had sprung up everywhere. And it was very common for mothers and sometimes fathers to attend school with their children. So that was good. And uh, Lizzie attended with her children and, in fact, got the perfect attendance award <laughs> at the end of one year. <laughs> So, can you imagine you're raising this fairly large family? You're doing all the things that you had to do back in in that time, and you're going to school to educate yourself. Let's try. What did that teach Ida Wells? It taught her a lot. Her education was very focused on literature and language because a lot of those schools, not having huge budgets, they would gather whatever books they could get a hold of, and they had Shakespeare, and they had the Bible, and um, that played a large part, I think, in Ida's future. Now, outside of this bubble of their household, which is comfortable, companionable. I know. You read about it. It sounds very Victorian. Yeah, it's very nice. Outside, these years since the Civil War had been spent, how shall I say, redeeming the states back from 
white people were very resentful mm-hmm. about the black people getting education and demanding rights and this and that. And they were wresting the power back from any black elected or sympathetic to black people government. It was, it was starting to go downhill almost immediately. Mm-hmm. It's a period called reconstruction, which sounds like it was doing something good. It just, but know, it was very chaotic. You know, it started out with such optimism and it immediately kind of started to be full of rules mm-hmm. and regulations and stuff. So that's kind of what's happening outside the Haven. But when Ida Wells was 16, there was a series of tragedies. Now, first off, James's mother took advantage of the opportunity to own property and she and her husband went off and they owned a farm. So at 16, Ida had gone out to visit Grandma Peggy at the farm. And while she did, unfortunately, a yellow fever epidemic spread through Mississippi. Now, Holly Springs had been spared from this in the past because of its geographic location. It it didn't get the epidemics. Well, and mosquitoes tended to carry both malaria and yellow fever, Mm -hmm. and this was on high and dry ground. Right. So it's not that it was better air. It was just less mosquitoes. (laughs) Kind of, but they didn't know. They had no, no idea. not at all. It was still the miasma theory of disease, which I thought was... Well, and Laura Ingalls' parents thought malaria was caused by eating watermelon. Do you remember that? No, I don't. Yeah, it's like everyone that eats watermelon gets malaria. It's like because you had to go down into the creek to get the watermelon where all the mosquitoes were. Right. But they didn't know. They thought it was... From the, from the watermelon. So nobody knew. So Ida is off at Grandma Peggy's farm, and the yellow fever epidemic hits Holly Springs. Now, people are dying. When people die, they need a coffin. Who makes the coffin? The carpenters. So James is making coffins, and Lizzie is doing what she can to keep her family healthy and help out her community. But unfortunately, they both fall victim to the yellow fever, as well as the youngest child who was nursing at the time. Um, He also got it. So word finally gets to Ida at the farm that her I mean, just blunt. Your parents are dead. She tries to get on a passenger change. There's none. She hops on a cargo train and gets back home to find her remaining five siblings and herself um, orphans. So she came home basically to a committee meeting. Her father was a Mason. And one big advantage of the Masons then and probably now is that they take care of widows and orphans Mm -hmm. of brother Masons. Mm And so it had been decided before Ida got back. The two sisters, well, I want a daughter. Well, I want a daughter, too. So two families were each going to take separately one of the little girls. The two brothers should be apprenticed out so they can learn a trade. There was another sister named Eugenia who was paralyzed, and they decided that no one was going to take her in, and she would just go to the poorhouse. So the whole family is going to be split up. Well, and then they said Ida's old enough to shift for herself. That was like, she can handle it. So I identified them all. Her mother, Lizzie, had been separated from her family mm-hmm. and had worked so hard to put this family together. And it was going to stay that way, as far as Ida was concerned. James had not left his family destitute. He had about $300 that he had given to a white doctor to keep safe for the family. Um, probably better than any bank, really. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but, she, but the city was scandalized because she was seen taking money from a white man, which got the taint of, you know, things that were not morally correct. Yes. <laughs> but she didn't really, it didn't affect her. It didn't really change her actions or mm-hmm. make her walk around like, oh, I didn't, you know, apologizing for herself. No, It's her was, family's money. That's right. And he was just a friend of her father's. That's right. It. Well, she did ask the Masons for one favor. She asked them, instead of this dispersal of my family, like so much confetti, I would like for you to get me a job as a school teacher. And that happened. She was able to secure a position as a country school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. She made $25 a month. But the, where she taught was away from Holly Springs. So she would commute and stay at families' houses in that town and then come back on the weekends and spend that with her brothers and sisters. So it was a very stressful time because she was gone and back. And then on the weekends, she mended people's clothes, wiped mm-hmm. people's nose, made dinner. And it was just like she never had a day off and for she two was years. Very young. She was 16, 17, but she did it. And she tried to continue her own education at Shaw in the summers and by firelight, in fact, because she couldn't afford candles. It was firelight or no light. Mm-hmm. You know, but some kind of lack of deference might have shown her maybe at the end of two years of, you know, uncertain lodging and weekends spent in. Pure duty, she was just 
the end of a rope. Mm-hmm. She was just like, tired. Burnt maybe. out. Sure. Yeah, but she was literally and in some secrecy expelled from Shaw before she graduated. I think she sassed the wrong person or yelled at them or. She had a temper on her, and she would struggle with that for for most of her life. You know, her tongue was going to get her into some trouble, where if she had mm-hmm. just thought it out a little bit more, she could have used her wits, but she spoke from her gut a lot, which was good, but it also got her into trouble, especially in this situation. I know. She blamed herself pretty much for the rest of her life about that. In her diary, she wrote, I thought of my lost opportunity, and a great sob rose in my throat. Mm. It's very sad. She felt like she had ruined her future. Right. Kind of. Well, and not just hers, but that of her, her family, too. They decided that the children would be split up, but they would go to family members instead. Aunt Belle took a couple boys and Eugenia, which was really important to Ida. That was the sister that had scoliosis mm-hmm. and couldn't walk. Right. The other two sisters, Amy and Lily and Ida, went to Memphis to live with Aunt Fanny. So the the kids are split up. They split up on their own terms, though. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, other people decided. And um, they were in, with family members, mm-hmm. which was pretty much keeping with what she wanted when her parents died. So in Memphis, the stress of life was taken a little bit off of Ida. She was able to be a young woman at this time. So she did keep teaching while in Memphis, but the school district that hired her was 12 miles north, and so she had to ride the train. And uh, on the trains at the time, there was an engine, obviously, to pull the train, Mm -hmm. and then the next car back was called the Smoker. And that's where, if you wanted to, you could smoke, and you could drink, and you could use bad language, and you could spit. In a spittoon, if you had good aim, or on the floor, if you didn't have good aim. And it was a rough, Wild West type of place to be. Behind that was a car called the ladies' car. This was a first-class car, and that's the car that Ida liked to travel in. And it's carpeted, and it's upholstered, and and it is women quiet. She could read, she could travel in comfort, and it's a seat that she paid for. Yes, she always bought first-class tickets, but the problem was conductors often forced black ladies into the smoking car, i.e. the lower-class, less-desired car, out of Mm -hmm. first-class, for no apparent reason. Ida had always dodged this until one day the man said, well, I can't accept that ticket, and she just thought, and I'll just keep it. And she thought if she was just a lady, he'll go away. Mm -hmm. She continued to read her book. She was nicely dressed. She had a brand new duster, which is a kind of an overcoat Mm -hmm. to protect you from the cinders. Uh, She looked nice. She looked respectable. And surely he wouldn't bother her. But he came by and took up her luggage and took up her umbrella and headed toward the front. And she knew he was going to the smoking car. And he tried to manhandle her. And three separate guys were trying to shove her front into the cart. And she decided she was not going to go lightly. No, she's holding onto the seat in front of her. And she is forcing her little self to stay in that see and she bites the hand of the conductor and he ended up ripping well he they ended up ripping both sleeves off her brand new duster in the fracas and as they hauled her out of the lady's car there were people applauding and they pushed her off the train and onto the platform she's purchased a first class ticket they're asking her to sit in less than first class accommodations and then she gets thrown off the train In such a disrespectful manner. She was angry and humiliated. Of course she was. So what is she going to do? She sues the railroad. She sues the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. And now, in addition to any expenses that she has, she's paying legal fees. Now, this is in the days before there was a separate but equal. Technically, they were all supposed to be equal. That was her main point. I'm equal. I paid for the seat. I should have the seat. The railroads in the Deep South were always very keen to operate their own way, and this kind of thing happened a lot. There was a second incident, in fact, and she right. uh, she won the first judgment for 200, but of course the railroad appealed. Of course, and they had bigger pockets than she did. Yeah, you know, she hadn't seen a cent of that yet. It's still in appeal. Then the second incident happened, and she won a judgment for $500, and an article in the paper covering this read, and I quote, Darky Damsel obtains a verdict for damages against the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. What does it cost to put a Negro school teacher in a smoking car? $500. Okay, you're going to believe this crazy thing. Get ready for this. The okay. railroad actually tried to hire a man to seduce her and ruin her reputation before the trial. How 
crazy. Well, that's because they saw her as a threat. I mean, they knew they had a smart woman here. There was only 20 black school teachers in the entire city of Memphis, and she was one of them. She was loud and opinionated, and she was going to be heard. There is another quote from the paper that will just make you sick. Okay. Reverend L.L. Tucker. What we call morality has no lodgment whatever in the African breast. So it seems like those people were the ones lacking morality. Mm -hmm. The people who dismissed all black women Mm -hmm. as hoes, basically. Right. Right. It was just what it was. Right. And who dismissed a whole class of people as less than, even to the point where a perfectly respectable, quiet person can't even just sit on a train. It just astonished me that that was such a big deal. I'm a product of my era, obviously. <laughs> no. um, but the railroad really, really, really wanted to avoid setting precedent. Really, really, really did. And so they delayed, delayed, delayed. That was their policy for a while. Mm-hmm. But Ida moved on with her life. She moved in literary circles in Memphis. She read voraciously. She acted in Shakespeare. She actually portrayed Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots That's on amazing. stage. <laughs> uh, she belonged to a debate society. In fact, a series... A big series, a big never-ending series of respectable suitors started trooping through that parlor in her rented house. Uh-huh. <laughs> she was so popular some days that the landlord would look around his parlor and it would be like dudes perched on every available seating place, hoping the other guys would leave before him. She's Holly Golightly, Civil War era. Can you just see? <laughs> she is enjoying, I don't want to say it's a party girl lifestyle because that diminishes who she was, but she was enjoying a very full life life, a very social life, uh, intellectually stimulating life, the arts. This is this woman. She was beautiful and snappy and so, so smart. Now, she was four and a half feet tall, which is even shorter than me. <laughs> it's astonishing. I understand myself. <laughs> but um, there were two suitors in particular that, you know, reached the finish line, eh, so to speak. Uh, I.J. Graham, who was a co-worker at her school. Uh-huh. Uh, let's call him the nerd. <laughs> and Louis M. Brown, who was a journalist, who was an unpredictable bad boy with good timing. Just as she started to lose interest, and he's back oh, with yeah. some fancy new clothes and some fancy new chat and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, she got really frustrated with this whole catching a husband game. And at 24, she wrote in her diary, I will not begin at this late date by doing what my nature abhors, sugaring men, those weak, deceitful creatures with flattery to retain an escort or gratify some revenge cracks me up this late date she's 24 (laughs) 24. i looked up the average age of marriage in this is 1886 22 years old so she's not like that past it right well i got married at 24 i guess come to think of it oh you did Mm -hmm. oh i was 28 doesn't that surprise you given our personalities that kind of surprises me Hmm. but anyway so she's she's Basically, not going to play this game anymore. That was fun. All right. I'm not going to compromise my ideals to, like, catch a husband. She knew she could do it. Oh, yeah. If it was important to her, she would have done it. When she was ready, she was going to do it. She didn't need to settle. She had some (laughs) options. Don't worry. So, instead of a marital move, she decided to make a career move. And this would be a natural place for us to take a little break. And when we come back, we will talk about her burgeoning career. Exciting news. We have a new voicemail box. We would love to hear the sound of your voice. If you have a comment or a question or want to leave us any kind of message at all, just call us at 816-934-1234 and let us know what you're thinking. Again, the number is 816-934-1234. So right now, our friend Ida is teaching school in Memphis. She is starting to write, but not professionally yet. A man from her church was beginning a black newspaper called The Living Way. And this man, uh, Reverend County, he wanted Ida to write about her train experience for free. Of course, he couldn't afford to pay her. <coughs> Blogging. Uh, <laughs> but the exposure you'll get. Oh, well, well, she was eager to do it. Come guess blog. I mean, guess right on my newspaper. <laughs> well, the article was a hit, and he asked for others. I do not know if he paid her for these others, or if they were still, like, uh, a gift. 
But um, unbeknownst to her, this paper had out-of-town subscribers, one of which was the editor of the New York Globe. And he runs her articles in the New York Globe. And she was on her way because that got some attention. And she began to get letters from journalists all over the country. Um, it was kind of like this brotherhood of colleagues. It was like they were networking on LinkedIn. And it was a LinkedIn, except the link was the U.S. postal system. Yes. Yeah. Her, you know, passionate, fiery style was much admired. She really did not pull any punches. She jumped right in mm-hmm. to politics. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, she wrote articles telling the Republicans, what have you done for us lately? And then she urged black people, don't get in the habit of being a Republican. You, you hold them accountable and you all stay independent, black people. Don't let them run you. She started to go by a pen name. <laughs> her pen name was Iola. And you know Nellie Bly was a pen name. Right. And it was fashionable to have a pen name, but I almost wonder if this was a security measure also. Yeah, keep her safe. Well, and, and her family. Yeah. There's, there's lots of people in lots of small towns that are not liking what's These being written. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, sure. But she held her race accountable for letting their rights slip. This is a quote from one of her articles. We howl about the discrimination exercised by other races. Unmindful, we are guilty of the same thing. She was just as forthright as a journalist as she was in person, Mm -hmm. which got her kicked out of school, remember? Yeah. Not PC at all. She didn't pull any punches. She began to be called the princess of the press, and she was eagerly sought as a speaker. She spoke everywhere and was not afraid to rile people up. Really. She reminds me of Mary Wollstonecraft. Do you remember from the Mary Wollstonecraft podcast, we talked about how she blamed women for letting things happen instead right. of making things happen. Right. And so Ida Wells was this kind of visionary for her people. That's a as great she comparison. Yeah, good job. People really loved her articles. She was called the most prominent correspondent of the Negro press. But race relations were worsening all over the South, it was not going well. Uh, segregation was becoming more prominent, more open. The old Ku Klux Klan, which had its beginnings, you know, 20 years before, was becoming a familiar name in small towns, and justice for all did not ring true, let's just say. When she was 25, Ida's railroad suit finally resolved by the higher court, but she didn't win. They overturned the lower court's judgment, and they charged her court fees. And they accused her of not, in fact, wanting transportation at all, but of just being an agitator who wanted to harass the railroad. And that just shows you how deep those go- those feelings go. I know. She said, I have firmly believed all along the law was on our side and would give us justice. I am now shorn of that belief, and I am utterly discouraged. I am sorely, bitterly disappointed. Did she lift up her petticoats and go find her suitor to marry? No, not really. No. There were shenanigans happening politically. Mm -hmm. Ballots now looked the same, which we would think would be good. There's no red ballot and white ballot. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, the vast majority of black voters were illiterate and used to rely upon that to let them know how to vote. Well, now they had to choose between this just list of names. And a law was passed prohibiting them from being helped to read the names. Right. And there was a $2 poll tax. So it's like 60 bucks if you want to vote. 60 bucks is a lot to spare for a vote. And so the Republican gains really eroded. (laughs) A little bit. Um, There. And then worse than shenanigans politically, reports of what was called mob law started to appear in small towns across the South running prominent blacks out of town to prevent them from voting, to prevent them from speaking, murdering black citizens, some hanged for being, quote, sassy to white people. The practice was lynching, and it goes back quite a ways. The term actually comes from a judge in revolutionary times, Charles Lynch, who wanted to cover himself if he was doing this kind of vigilante justice. Back in revolutionary times, they were protecting themselves from the British. Now they're using that same principle to protect, and I'm doing major sarcastic quotes here, themselves from the black community. They're drum up allegations of rape. That was the big thing, that some black man raped some white woman. And just by saying that, they would go after these people, innocent, not even put in front of a court of law, shoot them, drag them, hang them. Between the end of the Civil War and the 1960s... 1960! 
So we're looking at 100 years. There's over 3,500 people that had been killed in this way. It's quite horrifying. In fact, there's a song by Billie Holiday as late as 1939 called Strange Fruit. And the fruit does not refer to actual fruit, but lynching victims Mm -hmm. hanging on a tree. Right. Meanwhile, back in Ida's world, she's teaching school. She's writing these newspaper columns. She's kind of torn between two careers. But she's writing about the injustices that are happening in the school system. She's writing about how the white schools are receiving not only uh, easier careers for the teachers because they have smaller classes, but they're getting a lot more things that the black schools are not getting. And she's writing about it. Iola is writing about it. She wrote of this scandal that white school board members were giving young colored women teaching jobs in exchange for favors, shall we say. And the article was quite scandalous. I think this is so ironic, this preoccupation of Southerners with, like, the mixing of the races, given mm-hmm. slave owners throughout the entirety of slavery. Well, but now it's the like races. I mean, look at Ida's father right there. I know. It's like yeah. they, they're just completely preoccupied by that. But anyway, right. it turned out, unfortunately, that that first part was true. One of Ida Wells' young teacher co-workers ended up committing suicide as a result of this article. Mm-hmm. So the school year began, and Ida's contract was not renewed. Right. So she has no teaching career. So she had to make this journalism thing work. Here is a weird old irony. Journalists could travel for free on the railroads. (laughs) And Ida got free rail passes to travel Mm -hmm. to talk to Masonic Calls law offices and conventions. Mm -hmm. I just think that is so ironic. I'm sure she walked onto that train, all four and a half feet of her, (laughs) which such sass. Okay, here's something else. She became equal partners with two men on a newspaper called The Free Speech and Headlight. So this is what she did. She would travel and look for subscribers, basically. And she was so smart. She got a stringer in every town to send stories to her. People love reading their name in print. Mm -hmm. And she increased circulation by 250%. Sometimes she'd get so many subscriptions, she'd have to leave the stage and get someone to take her straight to the bank. (laughs) And then (laughs) I thought that was kind of cool. That is really cool. Um, She had the idea to put their paper on pink paper. Right. So just get the pink paper and somebody will read it to you. Her articles continued and inflammatory language like the following, the Negro of today is not the same Negroes there were 30 years back. That old Southern voice that was once heard and made the Negroes jump and run like rats is shut up or might as well be. Like, I feel it. (laughs) And then she also said, agitate and act until something is done while we're resting on our oars, content by resolutions. Others are presuming and encroaching more upon our rights, upon our lives themselves. She's like, look, people, keep your eyes open. Stop looking just in your homes at what you do for survival. You need to look bigger at what's going to happen to you. She was so irritated at the committee. The committee, the committee, the committee, the committee. She just hated it. She's basically like, you can sit there and talk all day. But if you don't come out here where I am and talk to people, nothing is going to get done. It's all theory. She could, she was so frustrated. And in that regard, she reminds me so much, you know, other women we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Molly Brown. Mm-hmm. You can sit there and whine that the Titanic people don't have money, or you can ask people for money. Or Claire, Claire Barton. Barton. <laughs> you can complain yep. the soldiers don't have shoes, or you could get your butt in a carriage and give them some shoes. Like, people are just like, okay. why are we We're talking just, about sit this? Sit around talking about how to get them shoes. Do it. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. She was definitely a doer. Now, um, in Georgetown, Kentucky, hmm, where I'm going to be in July, the black populace responded to a lynching by burning down some houses. And Ida Wells praised this as a spark of manhood. At last, finally you've shown some gumption. Right. Oh, that's right. inflammatory. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you can't always make friends that way. About this time, Ida is going to get pulled into her main focus for the rest of her life, and that is a campaign against lynching. She's been seeing it going on around her, but it finally strikes home. There is an area in Memphis that is called the Curve. And in this area, there was many retail establishments owned by black people and white people. One of them, the People's Grocery Company, was a black-owned grocery store that was doing quite well, much to the chagrin of the white-owned grocery store who was owned by a man named W.H. 
Barrett. W.H. Barrett, the owner of the white grocery store, starts a rumor that says that a white mob is going to attack the black store. So, of course, the owners of People's Grocery are going to protect their property, and they arm themselves. And in the skirmish, the white people that came to the grocery store were actually police deputies, and three of them are shot. So the owner of the grocery store, as well as two of his friends, are arrested. A white mob drags them out of jail, takes these three people without trial, and murders them and lynches them. This incident fueled the ire of Ida Wells. It really did shock Memphis to its core. She was even saying, okay, I know, in theaters or hotels or railroads, you know, we have trouble there. We do have trouble there, but we've never had a lynching. We didn't think it could happen here. We had confidence in our city and, I quote this, the majesty of its laws. Mm -hmm. But her illusion was just literally shattered right now because... In the back of her mind, she had this hidden thought, that, and as many people did, that everyone who had been lynched probably was guilty but just had been denied a fair trial. But one of these men, Mr. Moss, was a respected member of the community. He was a pillar of the church. He was not a bad guy. He had done nothing wrong. And she knew him. And so she now knew she knew that it was possible that not everybody was guilty of the crime that they had been charged. It was a shattering of her innocence. And she wrote that lynching is an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property. And that thus keeps the race terrorized. Yes. And she did say, there is nothing we can do about this lynching now. It's over. There's nothing we can do about it. There's only one thing that we can do. We can leave this town. It won't protect us. It won't protect our property or give us a fair trial in court, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood. She talked about Moses leading his people out mm -hmm. of Egypt. So she really did lead thousands of black people out of Memphis. Uh, 5% of the town ended up leaving. Leaving. And what did that do to the economy of Memphis? It crumbled it. The service people were gone. The people that were supporting retail establishments were gone. Yeah, whole blocks were unrented. And the, the trolley company, in its complete and utter confusion, came to Ida Wells and said, Hey, um, we noticed our black ridership is down. I wonder if everybody's just afraid of electricity. Electricity's fine. You should reassure them that electricity's not dangerous. And she's just like, that The this worst spin campaign ever. Has nothing to do with electricity. <laughs> yeah. No. Have you not noticed? Yeah, the trolley company. Ridiculous. You know what this reminds me of, though, is the bus boycott of 1955 in mm -hmm. Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's yeah. Like yep. The economy can really be changed if you all get together. So the lynchings continued, and as Susan said earlier, they always used that rape excuse, which mm -hmm. was hollow and false. And, you know, okay, yeah, in the South, honor is a big deal. Right. And if you took care of something that had to do with your wife's honor, that's fine. And that's how they respectabilized it. But there was absolutely no acceptance by the white community that some of these rapists mm -hmm. that were lynched were really boyfriends. Like, the boyfriends in question were right. out of the question. And Ida Wells thought that was an awfully convenient excuse and wrote the most inflammatory article ever, which astonished me. The lynching's not inflammatory. What's inflammatory <laughs> to everyone is... Nobody in this section of the country believes that old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern white men aren't careful, they're going to overreach themselves. We'll have a reaction. A conclusion will then be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of white women. Oh. Okay, that, you would have thought she had set fire to some houses herself. The reaction was explosive. And in fact, here's a quote from the day after that went down. Mm -hmm. From a white paper, it is the duty of any honorable white man to tie that wretch, meaning the author, to a stake, brand him on the forehead with an iron, and perform on him a surgical operation with a tailor's shears. But luckily, or in fact, probably on purpose, the him in question was a her, and she was on a train going to Philadelphia. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that saved her. But while she was gone, they went in and destroyed her offices, the newspaper yep. offices, and word got to her that said, if you come back here, you will 
suffer the same fate. So, But New York City black leaders just embraced her. She was given a quarter share of the New York Age paper. Lecture series organized all over the place. She had a speech that she was giving called Southern Horrors, Lynching in All Its Phases. And money was raised by these lectures to pay for publication. Well, it's a slim book pamphlet. And that's really what she wrote a lot of time. I mean, yeah. in addition to her newspaper articles, she wrote these pamphlets. And in fact, you can read them in their entirety at Project Gutenberg, which is really good. It's free service. Um, they've translated things that are in the public domain. They've scanned them. And put them online for your reading pleasure. <laughs> Ida Wells was constantly, throughout her whole life, frustrated that she doesn't seem to be able to raise people's ire about lynching. She's bewildered. Mm-hmm. She is, let's just say from now on, anytime a lynching happens, she documents it in great graphic detail and do- is not shy about putting it out there. No, and she goes and investigates the lynching. She goes and gets the names and accounts of people, eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. and she has all the documentation she needs to prove that each of these cases was done falsely. And it's just, it's really frustrating to her that no, everyone's like, oh, that's really bad. Hmm. So she decides at the request of a British Quaker to go speak in Britain. Maybe there'll be better luck there. The first year she was there, she gave 20 talks and she gave a hundred talks the next year. But while she was there, she got in some big fracas with the leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Carrie Nation, which we haven't discussed yet, was involved with this particular organization as well. So it's kind of, that gives you a background as to what the organization did. Well, the, the problem was that they both had a PR spin to maintain, and the lady, Frances Willard, that was the boss of the Christian Temperance Union, was also speaking in Britain at the time. And then, of course, Ida Wells comes up with these horrific tales, which horrify Britain. They're electrified and can't believe it. And so every time the Christian temperance lady talks, they ask her about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she made some comments like, oh, that race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. The grog right. shop is its center of power. You know, the home is menaced in a thousand localities, blah, blah, blah. She wasn't very nice. And Wells basically outed the fact that, oh, well, blacks aren't admitted to the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the South. They disapprove of my race. And someone got Lady Somerset to suppress a story in the newspaper. And so it was just like the PTA. Yeah. Yeah. Britons, with an O, basically sided with Wells. Um, The New York Times, on the Christian Temperance Union side, ran an article insisting black men were rapists and Wells was a slanderous and nasty-minded mulatress. Wow. But the British... the New York Times. I know. But the British press wrote, oh, white America may not think Miss Wells is speaking the truth. British Christianity does, and all the American press won't alter the facts of the case. Love it. So it was like America versus uh, Britain again. (laughs) It was, you know, they called her names like no tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Saddle-colored Sephiro, a strumpet. She was trying hard to shame her countrymen into action, and they were fighting back trying to shame her into shutting up. Back home, she was often a guest of Frederick Douglass. No, I wish we had more time to just mention him (laughs) more than in passing. You gotta look crush on Frederick Douglass? Well, you know what? He, like her father, was also the son of a white man and a right. slave mother. He's a lot older than than Idwell's. Right. Um, he had a great skill of public speaking, and he had a fantastic story of having been a slave in the South and having escaped to freedom, and he gave lectures about his life in slavery. He was way more patient and way more practical than Ida Wells. She was not, she was too militant for him. Mm -hmm. He advocated patience. She kind of regarded him as a father figure, but one of those fathers that's like cuckoo and they do their thing and you roll your eyes and you pat him on the back like, okay, okay, whatever. But he he (laughs) said, you're a brave woman. You have done your people and mine a service which can be neither weighed nor measured. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power on this subject. He thought she was awesome. They did have one big clash, though. It was the World Fair of 1893. We're back to the World Fair again. It's kind of interesting that we were just recently, you know, discussing Molly Brown going and and being in the same place as Helen Keller. Well, our friend Ida here is not pleased with the World's Fair. Mm -mm. No, they they did not include 
among the over 200 advisors and planners of the World's mm-hmm. Fair, there was right. not one black person. No. Nope. Oh, oh, well, you can work as porters or cleaners or paying customers, certainly, if you want. And any presence in the World's Fair was delegated to, like, a midway attraction. Yeah, where they made African villages and they would parade the, quote, natives up and down the offensiveness of that. Here's Ida Wells and her perfectly polished, prim Victorianness, witnessing that as a representation of her people. Frederick Douglass, Ida Wells, and many others, prominent black citizens, mm-hmm. would like a black pavilion to talk about, you know, advances since slavery. Right. It seemed like a reasonable enough thing. Right. Everybody had one. Why couldn't they have one? And they said, no, 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 no. So the country of Haiti said, well, you can you can use our facilities if you would mm-hmm. like. And they produced a pamphlet called Why the Colored American Man is Not at the Columbian Exposition. And they referred to lynching in there, and they gave out tens of thousands of copies. Of this pamphlet, right. And they did have one day of recognition. And Ida said, forget it. One day, it's it's a mockery. They're not giving us anything. And they called it Darky Day. Well, yeah. officially it was Colored Day. Ida was freaked out. Yeah, she was not She was not going to be a part of any of that. I mean, they'd have special programs just for that day and just for one, one day. day. And also, I read in one of these books, just brace yourself, they were going to give out free watermelon. I'm just well, saying. it was summertime and it was very hot, however. But how come they just gave out free watermelon, watermelon. on a darky day? I don't know. If there I had been watermelon know. the other days, then I would say, oh, look, watermelon, a nice, refreshing, cool treat. Right. But it was that um, one day. Just, yeah. She boycotted the whole thing. Frederick Douglass went, spoke eloquently, charmed the crowds that were had intended to be there to mock them. Frederick Douglass, as well as some other speakers, took the day and seized the opportunity and turned it into such a positive experience that she went back and said, okay, you're right, this time I shouldn't have. She, yeah, she apologized. She called mm-hmm. herself a hothead. That's the least offensive thing <laughs> people right. have said about her in a long time. I think maybe now, leaving the other side of my favorite exposition. I know, side, sorry. <laughs> I think now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back... More fabulous meetings and work of Ida B. Wells. And we're back. We are back. So at this point... Our friend Ida has her mission in life. And the way she wrote, this is a direct quote from her, somebody must show that the African-American race is more sinned against than sinning, and it seems to have fallen upon me to do so. She feels she has her mission, and this is what she, for her rest of her life, is going to be devoted to. Not only Frederick Douglass was in her circle of friends, there was another friend that you'll all know the name of, that mm-hmm. came to hear her speak. Susan B. Anthony, famous former abolitionist and current suffragist, came to see Ida Wells speak. And sure enough, this famous white lady stood up and took down a heckler that tried to give Ida Wells, who she didn't know at the time, tried to give Ida Wells trouble, and Susan B. Anthony stood up and took him out. Love it. I thought that was awesome. Now, she did think it complicated the suffragist cause to add as she termed it, Negro women, mm-hmm. to the cause. That was pretty disappointing to Ida Wells. Nevertheless, Susan B. Anthony was very anti-racist. She had once fired a secretary for refusing to help Ida Wells do something. The lady said, I won't work for a colored woman. And Susan B. Anthony said, then you won't work for the white woman. And fired her and told her to pack her stuff and get out. Right. I can see your point. It, does, it would kind of dilute her mission a little bit. Although this is also a mission that Ida had near and dear to her heart. It wasn't just, she was, wasn't was speaking for her race, she was also speaking for her gender. Yeah. It seemed like, during this little period of her life, that she she just wasn't getting the responses she wanted to get. It felt like, like as my little son said, she was walking through jello. <laughs> you know, like, just slogging, slogging. Where am I even getting with this? One paper even said, our noble little heroine is disappointed with the most unappreciative Negro race. She just couldn't raise anyone up. She couldn't figure it out. She couldn't figure out why they weren't feeling like she was. Yeah. She could just find the right words 
to yeah. do that. Some reporters at a white paper called The Commercial referred to her as a harlot. Oh, yeah, yawn, heard it, seen it, whatever. But then they went specific and called her the mistress of a certain person. They tried to make it specific. It was all lies. And they said she wanted income instead of outcome and just wanted to marry a white husband. And she decided she was going to sue this paper for slander. Good. Yes. Um, she contacted a famous white attorney named Albion Tourget, but unfortunately he didn't have time to work on her case as he was involved in a very high-profile case indeed. In fact, have you, in a history class, you've probably heard of a case called Plessy versus Ferguson? Right. That's like the only case that anyone's <laughs> ever heard of. Well, you know, that was a railroad case. Mm-hmm. He got kicked out of a first-class train car. Right. Hmm. Who else has that happened to? Right. And it happened after Mm -hmm. Ida's. And her case, which was in the appellate court, was actually cited in that case, which is like, okay, now we're tied into history again. But anyway, he said he could, he didn't have, you know, sorry, you know, couldn't take her case, but he referred her to a black lawyer friend of his that he respected that would do a good job for her, called Ferdinand Barnett. He was a lawyer. Living in Chicago. Now, we are in Ida is living in Chicago at this point, and he also partially owned a newspaper. Well, she decided to marry Ferdinand Barnett, and the papers and everybody was so confused. The public has become so interested in the unique career of Miss Wells that her determination to marry a man while she's still married to a cause will be a topic of national interest and comment. I'm kind of wondering, we talked about this off mic, I'm kind of wondering if she's settled, like out of fatigue or something, because, in fact, the very weekend of her wedding, she went back to work as a journalist, quote, for this was my first and must be said my only love. What? Was she just tired? I don't know. I don't know. If Did she think that this was expected of her? Was she tired of hearing these allegations that she was just looking for a white husband? I don't know, but nine months after this day, honeymoon, (laughs) uh, Ida had her first child, little Charles, and almost immediately went out canvassing for a Republican candidate. And I love this quote. She said, I honestly believe I'm the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches. I love that. I love that image of her. She has this mission and she's got her job, and she's got her baby on her hip. She's boarding trains and going places to do speaking engagements with her baby. That's very modern. And she made arrangements ahead of time with all of her um, clients that there had to be a baby nurse waiting for when she was on stage to hold baby Charles. But baby Charles was welcomed by a lot of these women's associations that she had formed and was speaking at. (laughs) Now, during this time, she worked for Freedom for Cuba from Spain. It's like, well, let's just take on some more causes. She did. She worked for women's groups of all kinds. And, of course, lynching was the top of her list. And at this point, President McKinley even spoke of it in his speeches. So it's getting to the top. It is getting there. It's getting out there. This cause I has been working on for so long has finally made it at least out of the mouth of the President of the United States. So that's good. She helped establish the very first black kindergarten in Chicago. Her second son, Herman, was born and followed by Ida and Elfrida, her daughter. Uh, I'm sorry, Ida? She named her daughter Ida. Um, Ida often, in her travels, came across people that she fundamentally disagreed with. Booker T. Washington, also super super famous, um, who had come up with this Atlanta compromise in which blacks would voluntarily give up politics in exchange for education and uh, permission to work hard, etc. And um, that infuriated infuriated Ida that was fundamentally opposed to everything she stood for. And, you know, her basic response to that was, do not accept this crap. (laughs) I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Obviously, she continued to write expose after expose about specific lynchings. She made enemies of people who might later have been her help, like Booker T. Washington. There is a large and extensive list right now of women's groups, black groups, associations, political action committees, of which... I don't know. It is just an alphabet soup of initials and letters, and no one ever listened to her anyway. It's a mystery. She's left out. She's in. She's reviled. She's revered. She's allowed to speak. She's shut shut out. It's just... And a lot of these are organizations that she helped found Mm -hmm. because they had a common goal. Well, even the NAACP, 
which is still around today, the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. Even the head of that organization said that she was, quote, she was fitted for courageous work, but not for the restraints of organization. <laughs> that was a pretty kind way to say, I can't work with this person. She's a founding member of it, but not welcome into its fold exactly. You know, she Who does was, that remind you of? Claire Barton later on in uh, The Red Cross. The Red Cross. You know, I did think about that. Like, here she was at the very, very beginning of this powerful group, and then they just dismissed her. Mm-hmm. In fact, they belittled, I think, her role in getting lynching to the public forum at all. U.S. Representative Leonidas Dyer. Oh. That's Leon- a name you don't see I too much. I think you Leonidas. Leonidas. If you are a Leonidas, write us. Yeah, that would be awesome. Introduced, dun dun dun, an anti-lynching bill at last to the Senate. It took nine months of I'm just a bill, I'm only a bill, before it got to the (laughs) floor for a vote. The NAACP infuriated her by giving itself most of the credit for beginning this crusade, saying, oh, she'd done some work on the subject. Just a little bit in the last 50 years. Yes. Dirty. It's like those bands that are overnight successes, but they've been playing clubs for 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are they an overnight sensation <laughs> when they've been slogging it out? They really have. Right. So lynching was... An overnight success, mm-hmm. evidently. Whatever. Mm. She was so angry at being marginalized. You know, once again, she was definitely lacking in interpersonal savvy, I think. She was very good at stirring the crap that she did not know how to relate to. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no. Well, then I thought, what kind of, you know, should I beep that out if I say it? Whatever. I didn't know. No. Okay. So she was so good at stirring the crap that she did not know how to relate to people or understand that other people might have different motivations than herself. Mm-hmm. She just had the, the worst time at seeing things from the other person's point of view, I think. That's I think like that's hard for, life. I mean, that's hard for most people. When you embrace something so passionately, it's often very difficult to see the other side. So she switched a little bit. Now that the NAACP is on deck, you know, she switched a little bit and created another group. The Alpha Suffrage Club for African American Women. Wow, that's going to take up a lot of science space. <laughs> and she wrote, if the colored women don't assert themselves now, they'll have only themselves to blame when they're left out of everything. And she would send people out to canvas. And men were surprisingly reluctant to see these women come to their door to solicit votes for women, etc. Mm-hmm. Go home to your babies, they would say. And so, finally, savvy, at last, Ida Wells thought, hmm. And so she sent them back out and said, tell them that you need the vote so you can put a black man on the city council. <laughs> and that worked yeah. because she registered thousands of women to vote <laughs> the year following when she was 53. That's great. So it's like, dude, learn to push the levers. <laughs> At the age of 68, she decided to launch an attempt to run for state senate. So she's 68. She has this whole long history behind her. Now, at this point, the family is not as affluent as they had once been. I mean, the Depression took a lot out of the family. They had sold their very large home in a very affluent area, and they were cutting back. The kids were all grown, although some of them seem to have some issues with gambling. And I mean, it's that self-made parent, you know, the offspring situation that we've talked about in the past. But anyway, so she launches an attempt to run for state senate. She uses quite a bit of their money in this attempt, and it is ultimately, it's a fail. She took her defeat in stride, actually. She said, well, we'll know better next time. That's basically what she said. Which is awesome. But she's 68. Resilient. We'll know better next time. Yeah. And she characteristically started two new projects, a newspaper called the Chicago Review, and her autobiography called Crusade for Justice, and a YMCA book fair of black authors to benefit the YMCA. It's like, rest. Just rest for a minute. Well, she's going to rest. I know. And she's going to rest in peace. Because she doesn't actually finish her autobiography. She is stricken ill at the age of 69 and dies of uremic poisoning. Which is a kidney failure. Yeah. So it was painful and quick, I believe. And Well, her autobiography ended in the middle of a sentence. Is that creepy? It's done. She wrote until the last minute. In March of 1931, Ida B. Wells Barnett dies. 
of uremic poisoning, so kidney failure. Kidney failure. Mm -hmm. Her daughters and her husband were on hand to see her go. Her legacy, of course, lives on. Um, she's not one of the more well-known. She isn't. You know, she's not one of the more well-known civil rights workers, which is astonishing to me since she was so public. Mm-hmm. She was so well-known by prominent people. And not just in this country or in her state. All over world. the world. But you know, what's really sad is her legacy or her fame began to die long before she died. Mm-hmm. The NAACP, you know, minimized her involvement. Mm-hmm. People started to forget. Um, I was calling them noobs, like the newbies mm-hmm. in the movement. Most of the time didn't know who she was. Right. Who is this strident human being sitting next to me daring to shout things out? It's like if you were on a message board and you disappeared for 10 years and then you come back and the new guys are freaking out that you have an opinion and you're brand new. Right. They forgot all about her. Mm-hmm. While she's still alive. It wasn't even <sighs> years so after her passing. I know. It's very sad. So one link that I recommend that you take, um, there is a PBS American Experience on Reconstruction, which is that period after the Civil War in which lynchings became on the rise and Ida B. Wells' career took off. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, we'll just provide the link, it's called Reconstruction, the Second Civil War. And so highly recommend, that's a very media-heavy site. So that's very good. There is a site, IdaBWells.org, and again, we'll link you to that, that is run by her family, I believe, and that will give you links to uh, projects that have to do with her legacy, as well as some history of her life. Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in Holly Springs, Mississippi is available for you to tour. That's Swire Bowling's house. Mm-hmm. Just it's so a really know. pretty house. It's the house that they moved out of the day they got locked out of the tool shed. Sorry, Mr. Bowling. That house is now the Ida Wells Museum. <laughs> so that's awesome. And her father has done a lot of carpentry in that house. That's kind of cool. The Ida Wells house in Chicago is a um, landmark. However, it is a private residence. You can see it from the exterior. You cannot go in. It is on what is now called... Martin Luther King Drive. Unless you're charming or attractive or bold, then I say knock on the door. (laughs) Tell them the history chick sent you. (laughs) I'm making a face. I'm not sure that's a good idea. No, don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) But if you do, yeah, um, post some pictures. Yeah, please do. Um, Also, timeline at digitalhistory.uh.edu is an excellent resource for Reconstruction and um, the progress of black citizens after the Civil War. It's quite good. The old and venerable Project Gutenberg at Gutenberg.org is where you can read all of Ida Wells' works, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend that you do. And there's Frederick Douglass's things on there. There's Booker T. Washington things on there. If you you know, yeah, you can spend quite a bit of time reading and just going from one thing to another, and that's pretty pretty darn exciting. There is an Ida B. Wells on Twitter, but she does not character tweet, so I don't recommend that you follow her. So if anyone wishes to character tweet as Ida B. Wells, I think the position is open. I do too. Do you have any books you want to recommend? I do. I have. Okay, there is a book I highly, highly recommend. It is a very tiny little book, which has been writing in my handbag for a couple weeks now, which is really good <laughs> for my handbag. Um, it is called They Say, Ida B. Wills and the Reconstruction of Race by James West Davidson. Now, it only goes up until she's 30 or so. It ends pretty much at her marriage, but it is so good. And the pictures in here, especially the very beginning pictures, are a little graphic, but so many of them are. Yeah, it's very hard to find, oh my, she's showing me a picture, yes. Um, it's very hard to find books that are not graphic in nature, especially, I mean, what her life was about was to stop a, an atrocious act. So there are quite a few pictures. There is a African American biography by Elaine Slavinsky, Lee Sandrelli, there's a name, um, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Crusader Against Lynching, which it, it does have a, some lynching pictures in it, but it is appropriate for middle, middle grade kids. I would recommend this one. And there's also To Tell the Truth Freely, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Mia Bay, which is fairly readable. It's, it, there's a lot of dates and things that are thrown in and you kind of get, you have to stop and breathe for a few seconds, but, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good one. 
Yeah, that, that first book that I recommended, they say very readable. I almost mm-hmm. would say start with that one. Yeah. And um, it's, and it's small, which is, I always think is a good way to start. It's paperback size. It's yeah, perfect. it's, yeah. Okay, so then also you can actually read her diary. The mm-hmm. Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells, edited by Miriam DeCosta Willis. Which also stops when she is uh, in her early 30s, but it is a very good um, resource to kind of analyze her internal struggle. I mean, she started out being an adult way too early. Yes, she did. So this is a really good insight. She didn't have any intimate friends to talk to, so she talked to her diary. So mm-hmm. that's really good to read, too. So those are her. I mean, if she was a blogger, that would be her blogs right there. Mm-hmm. And now you have this tome here. Yes. This, book, what is this book? Like three inches? This book is 800 and so pages. Ida, A Sword Among Lions by Paula J. Giddings. A mightily complete, for the dedicated only, I would say, book that is very detailed about Ida Wells' life. I would work up to this one. It is very worthy. Um, if the subject has interested you up to the point where you have checked this book out, I think you should just go ahead and dig in. It is so specific. It is very detailed. Lots of books for this one. So that is the life of Ida Wells. Let me just leave you a quote from the author Paula J. Giddings. Ida's faith in women and her race did not falter, even as she alternately berated, dismissed, organized, and moved them to realize their power in a modern age. Wells had also demonstrated that ideals had to be fought for, and that race could never rise above how the least of them was treated. The end. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com.